where things went wrong, I suppose you could say, is that situations changed in terms of the overall structure of the entity, the parties behind the entity, and the situation of some of the people who became involved with the entity going forwards. I guess we'd found ourselves, therefore, in a situation where we were you know, acting as advisor to a range of funds. We'd, we'd entered into that with you know, a certain set of assumptions. Those had changed as time went on. And I think the investment mistake was that we didn't fully realize just how much that was going to impact the investment here. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you've got to take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name's Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and today I am here with Paul Gambles, who will be telling us about his worst investment ever. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. Great to have you. So before we get started, I'll share your background with our listeners. Listen to this, guys. Paul Gambles is a co-founder of both MBMG Group and MBMG SEC Regulated Wealth Division. That's called MBMG Investment Advisory. Paul now oversees clients' assets in excess of $1.2 billion. Paul is a member of the advisory board of Idea Economics and a well-known expert commentator who appears regularly on national and international television. Paul has written a great number of academic research papers, articles, and opinion columns while also finding the time, I don't know how you do this, the time to write over 2,000 editions of his blog, MBMG Update. Paul Gambles holds a degree in English and European Literature and Studies from the University of Warwick. Furthermore, he is licensed by the Thai SEC as a Securities Fundamental Investment Analyst and Financial Planner and has achieved recognition as one of the offshore 100 leading global investment personalities as well as one of Thailand Tatler's top 300 expatriates living in Thailand. Paul, you got anything to add to that? Tell us something about your personal life. Well, what could I add? I've got a very good friend in, uh, in London called Alistair Winter, who probably one of the few people out there who reads the stuff that I tend to tweet from time to time. And he's, he's given me, I think, slightly ironically, the nickname of the Sage of Bangkok. So uh, that's, uh, that's probably all I can, I can add. Well, today we're going to definitely get some sage advice from your story, I am sure. Now, before telling us your story and sharing it, uh, tell us about your level of investment experience and what type of investment story you're going to be telling us about today. Sure. Okay. So, I, I've, I've been involved with capital markets and the investment industry for probably longer than I care to remember right now. When I was in the UK, my second career, because my first one actually, and I probably shouldn't admit this, was working for the uh, the UK tax authorities, the Inland Revenue. And then I jumped ship and uh, worked for a bank, in, uh, initially uh, corporate and commercial banking. From then, I uh, progressed into the investment world. I've been here in Thailand now for 25 years. And the, the kind of investment work that we do, MBMG Investment Advisory these days, is, well, exactly what it says in the name. It's investment advisory. So we will do work for either private clients, corporate clients, some family offices, some institutional clients. And we'll look at things like overall asset allocation. Is it suitable to risk profiles? Does it optimize 
potential outcome returns, and uh, and we'll also do sometimes some work on a specific asset. I guess that sort of it leads into today's story. I was asked by an institutional client to do some work for them a number of years ago with a particular remit that, that involved looking at some investments primarily in Southeast Asia, but uh, also some on a global basis. When I took up that, uh, that mandate, when I entered into that role for them, I perhaps came across a situation that maybe uh, to some extent was different, turned out differently to how I might have expected. <laughs> okay, that's a good setup. So now let's let's go into this. I mean, the thing that I we talked about earlier before the before we went live was the concept that you know nobody goes into their worst investment ever thinking it was their worst. In, you know, Absolutely. this is going to be my worst investment. So can you describe the circumstances leading up to this worst investment and then tell us your story? So. One thing that we always do is every investment, we always try to understand, you know, what's the worst possible outcome? You know, there may be investments you make where you end up losing capital, you end up losing 100% of your capital. But if you understand that on the way in and you understand what your risks are, then, you know, you're making an informed decision. We always try to, you know, analyze that using historic data or even thinking outside the box. We always try to make sure we know where the exit door is before we go in, which I think is a, you know, that's a very common investment mistake. We've always preached to people about, you know, trying to understand all the range of outcomes that, uh, that conceivably could happen and uh, try and make sure that you do what you can to protect yourself from the most adverse of those and try and, you know, at least be aware of what the impact would be of those on your overall portfolio, your, uh, your overall investment. So we've always very much preached that message and, you know, this particular situation was really no different, or we thought it was no different on the way in. So it sounds like, I mean, you know, when, when somebody hears that, it sounds like you're going into every investment and uh, how could you lose? <laughs> so tell us, tell us, tell us, how does it, how did this particular investment that we're talking about, how did it happen and when did it start to go wrong and what did you, how did you handle that at that time? Okay, so in the mid to late, Noughties, so from sort of 2005 to about 2010, we've done quite a lot of institutional consulting work for, um, for some clients in the Channel Islands. One of the people that we'd, we'd done work for told us that they were setting up a new operation. Um, this was around about 2010 from, uh, from memory. And that new operation was, was actually going to be based in Mauritius. At that point, Mauritius was doing an awful lot to try and establish itself as an upcoming financial and investment center. It was offering various tax breaks as, uh, as, as financial centers, offshore financial centers tend to. It was also seemingly putting in place a very robust investment environment, which you know, is, is obviously one of the things that we, we always check in detail. We, we have a very strict due diligence process and you know, to be fair, we applied that particular due diligence process to, to this investment. Um, and the kind of things that we'll tend to cover when we, when, we, when we do that are who are the counterparties that we're likely to be dealing with, full background checking on, on those, what's the regulatory environment like in the jurisdiction involved, and again, very detailed checking and often using you know, third parties to, uh, to, go and, uh, to go and look into uh, in, in areas that are slightly outside our specialization, making sure that we're comfortable with that. And so we've, um, 
we pretty much satisfied ourselves that the people involved, the jurisdiction, the regulators in Mauritius, they were all suitable. As for the underlying assets themselves, well, that was going to be our role to actually make sure that we identified, analyzed suitable underlying assets for, uh, for the structure to hold. That part was never really a problem. The assets that we, that we bought or that we advised the, the funds to buy, you know, they in general have, uh, have tended to perform extremely well. Um, you know, an example would be that there was a convertible loan deal that we analyzed in great detail for a Singaporean entity that ended up subsequently listing on the Australian stock exchange at um, something like, you know, you know, the conversion was something like 10 times the, the original loan amount. So the underlying assets themselves were, you know, that was fine, that was our job, we, uh, we checked all that out. Where things went wrong, I suppose you could say, is that situations changed in terms of the overall structure of the entity, the parties behind the entity, and the situation of some of the people who became involved with the entity going forwards. I guess we'd found ourselves, therefore, in a situation where we were you know, acting as advisor to a range of funds, we'd, we'd entered into that with you know, a certain set of assumptions. Those had changed as time went on. And I think the investment mistake was that we didn't fully realize just how much that was going to impact the investment here. It's a great lesson already. What you're talking about is the difference between having an investment idea and actually putting an investment idea into action. Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. that requires a structure, the people. That's a very, very interesting point. It's absolutely key. You know, you can, you can actually lose money on great investment theses if you don't have every single aspect of the, the structure and the people involved and the regulatory environment and, you know, Absolutely everything that we that we uh, undertake, always undertake as a due diligence process, unless all of that is absolutely right. You know, the frustrating thing is you can actually end up you know, either losing money or not making as much as you should on an absolutely great investment thesis. Let's understand then when it started to go wrong, and, and this is a good lesson as you explain this, how did you start to react to that when you started to realize, uh-oh, something has changed and we've got to figure out what's going on and what to do because I'm sure some of our listeners will be, have been, you know, or are in a situation where it's not the investment thesis that's going wrong, it's the people and, and the structures and all that that's involved. Absolutely. So without getting into, you know, rings of technical detail that would, uh, that would you know, take hours and hours to go through. Good, good idea, good idea. <laughs> Keep it simple. <laughs> so the simple version is that the funds that we were advising were also you know, part of a larger group. I think we were advising something like 10 funds out of a group of well over 100. And because each fund was a self-contained legal entity, we, we'd essentially sort of just focused on doing the job that we were being paid to do, which was to, to advise you know, these 10, 10 funds. What, um, what transpired is that other advisors were obviously advising the other 90 funds within the structure. There was a really big question mark, which you know, I think to this day is still largely unanswered, about a handful of the other funds within the structure. 
some of those clearly entered into difficulties. I mean, you know, the quality of the underlying assets in some of those funds perhaps was a problem. As I say, I don't, I don't know the full background on those even today. But what I know is that around four or five, I think, other funds in the, that, that shared, you know, the same platform, the same administration group, clearly had issues in terms of whether they were, you know, fully compliant, whether they were, whether they were, you know, actually achieving their investment outcomes. And that, that prompted a response from the regulator in Mauritius. And the regulator decided initially to suspend the entire administration group. I think their view was if, if something had gone wrong with four or five of the funds, they needed to check the other 95 or so. They suspended the administration group and appointed, I think it was PwC, as third-party conservators to check the assets across the group. So far, that was, you know, that's a reasonably responsible action. It's a little bit, you could argue it's a little bit kind of, you know, scattergun, but, but you know, we, we, we were very comfortable with that. We were, we were shocked to find out that we were sharing an investment platform with uh, funds where there were questions as to whether they'd been incompetent or possibly even worse. But we, we were happy that the regulator took action and appointed a conservator to check the assets. So within a, a month or two, obviously the stuff that, that we were doing got a very clean bill of health. And, and I think, you know, most of the other funds on the platform got a, got a clean bill of health too. At this point, though, found out that I suppose as all early stage financial centers do, Mauritius had perhaps experienced what you might call some growing pains in the, in the three or four years uh, since, since we'd undertaken our initial due diligence, which obviously we'd, we'd updated, but uh, we hadn't found out that there were a number of regulatory problems under the surface that were all now starting to surface at the same time in Mauritius. And this led to wholesale changes within the, the regulator there, the Financial Services Commission. So we, we actually found ourselves dealing with sort of trim head of the commission. We found ourselves dealing with relatively new staff. And I suppose it dawned on us at that stage that the Mauritius regulators seemed to be staffed with some very bright people, some very well-intentioned people, but th there wasn't perhaps the, the depth of level of experience that you might hope to, to find in a, a regulator in, in what was such a fast-growing and you know reasonably significant at that stage financial center. So as, as I say, that that I think then led into some. I think it's probably fair to say mistakes being made by the regulator in the way that the good funds were were handled. I think they've, they've probably gone and handled the. Um, the problem cases, okay, they, they kind of had a, a process and a template and a procedure for doing that. So I think they handled the, the four or five problem cases, okay. They didn't really know what to do at that stage with, with the good funds. They'd, they'd already insisted on closing down the administration company and the platform. Um, and so they, they suddenly had to try to find a way to rehabilitate a, a number of well-performing, good funds that uh, you know PwC had come and looked at, given a clean bill of health, and said, "Yep, all the assets are there, everything's fine. Uh, essentially, these should all be allowed to carry on." What What did you learn from this experience? I mean, uh, it's a it's a high, it's a let's say a, a very advanced type of problem that maybe the average listener may not get. 
Tell me what you learned from it and how it affects the way you do business now. I, I think you know there, there is there is a potential kind of knock on effect that affects all investors, which is you know as you were saying earlier, you know you have a great investment thesis, you can actually be holding assets that are appreciating in value, but unless every aspect of the mechanism surrounding those assets and surrounding that investment not only works at the point when you set it up, but also as far as anybody can you know, reasonably determine, is going, to, is going to work going forward. Unless you have as much certainty as you reasonably can over that, then it almost doesn't matter how good the investment thesis is. You need the infrastructure to support that. You need the framework to support that as well. And you need to have, let's say, as much certainty as you can that that framework isn't going to be, isn't going to deteriorate, isn't going to change dramatically, isn't going to you know, suddenly become something very, very different to what you thought it was when you entered into it. Now, I know that you know, a lot of investors don't necessarily look at investments in that way. They, they will you see a lot of people sort of take that for granted. But I, I, I think you know, the big lesson is you really can't take that for granted. You know, we, I don't think we were guilty of taking that for granted. We just... We, we did the work, we did the normal process that we, that we do, and yet we still, we still got caught out on it. So we've, we've adapted our, our processes in a lot of ways. We've, um, we've made sure that you know, if there are personnel changes within an investment, you, you need to absolutely you know, understand those. We really try to do everything you can to, to think what the worst possible impact of those personnel changes could be. I so say one of the reasons we'd initially felt comfortable going into this were that you know we had some very long-standing connections. Those connections had actually actually changed over time, and the um, people that came in said so we did our due diligence, they passed all the checks. But you just have to, uh, I think, you know, be cognizant of if the people are a part of why you invest, and to an extent they should be in every investment. You need to be able to trust the people. If the people are a part of why you invest, if the people change, you, you maybe have to reassess that in a way other than just making sure that the new people satisfy, satisfy any due diligence that you can do on them. You perhaps need to ask that at a more critical level. And, and I think the other thing is when we did due diligence on Mauritius as a jurisdiction, when we did our due diligence on the service partners that the funds were using in Mauritius, that all passed muster. But again, that changed, you know, that significantly changed over a relatively short period of time. And so again, I think, you know, every investor needs to understand that. You need to do a regular, almost health check on the due diligence of your investments. I know it's not the sexy part of investing. We all want to look at, you know, what the returns are going to be. We all want to put our investment theses into action. But actually, if the framework, if the groundwork isn't, isn't absolutely as it should be and doesn't 100% remain absolutely as it should be, you might find yourself in a situation that's not quite the one you thought you'd entered into. Okay, so let me summarize my takeaway from that. Basically, what I would say is don't miss the idea that the structure is just as important absolutely. as the thesis. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we take that down to the average person's experience, you know, when someone comes to you and they say, hey, let's start a business or let's start a restaurant or let's do this, you know, do you have the shareholder agreements in place? 
what would happen if this person says, oh, I'm only going to work half time in this now? You know, the different things that you need to put in place. So, for instance, as I always say, investing in, for instance, startups, as an example, I say that you've got to have trust, that you trust the person, then you've got to have a good idea, and then that person's got to have good execution. And if any of those go wrong, you know, the, the, the execution and the good idea is fine, but if the trust falls apart or the structure falls apart, you're not going to get the gain, even if the gain is in the vehicle. Absolutely. So that's that's my takeaway. No, I, I agree with that totally. I, I just add, but also you know, monitor how those things change over time. Is uh, is the person that you entered into business with a year ago? Are they still acting in the same way, the same trustworthy way that you assumed, um, you know, a year previously? Or if they get bought out by somebody else who has you know very good credentials, well. You know, be very, very careful about that. I'm not saying you, know, you, can, you can never make changes in life. Life is all about change. But sometimes, you know, we have to be really, really careful to make sure we fully understand all the implications of every change. Well, I think that's a excellent, an excellent ending with some great actionable advice. And, you know, Paul, when I go up and down the elevator, the lift in my building, they have a place where they have a signature of the guy that comes and checks it on a regular basis. And I guess maybe that's what we need to think about yeah. is that we always need to be consistently checking our investment. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, well, there you have it, fellow risk takers. Another painful story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Paul, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers but our listeners are winning. They're learning to win definitely from this as a result. So before we close, do you have any parting words? I think just always try to understand the risks. You know, the, there's a real problem with the investment industry that everything tends to be focused on the good side and the upside and the potential, you know, uh, profit outcomes. That's fine. That's why we invest. But never, ever, ever for one minute forget about the risks. Boom. That's fantastic. And I think that's a good reason why Paul joined us on the show is to share about risk. And that's what we're about here. So there you go, fellow risk takers. Another great story to help you to create, grow, and protect your wealth. I'll see you on the upside.